started whenever it was Just one brief logistical announcement. Um, we're having a problem with one of the HVAC units in here. So it means the other three are going to have to work a little overtime. Please don't adjust the HVAC units because otherwise uh, we're going to have further problems of it getting too, too warm in here. That's all. Okay. If, it, if it's too cold for you sitting next to the HVAC units, you can try to switch with somebody. But uh, they all need to stay on. Otherwise, it's not going to work. I don't think Father Corbett needs any further introduction, so I'll just let him take it from here. Okay, thank you. Are we, is this running? Yes. Okay, so our general uh, topic has been faith and asceticism and apologetics, and my idea is that there is a link between asceticism and apologetics, uh, the mode of self-sacrificing life and the mode of removing obstacles to the faith. Um, yesterday we talked about faith and especially in relationship to asceticism. Uh, and this asceticism from yesterday's point of view is largely noetic. There is a kind of a, a crucifixion of the mind that goes on in the act of faith. Um, it doesn't mean that you're believing or asked to believe anything irrational, or that you're consciously embracing something that you think probably is false. That's, it's not that kind of uh, suffering. It's not being uh, internally divided or self-contradictory. It's not that. But it's simply the frustration that comes from not being able to see what you profess. See, um, this faith, which is a genuine form of knowledge, I want to underscore that, it's, uh, it's unlike knowledge because we don't see the, the grounds of our affirmations ultimately, but it is like knowledge in that it's absolutely firm in your conviction. So you believe, it's not like you're wavering in your belief, the belief is firm and it's as firm in that sense as knowledge, it's like knowledge in that sense. But it's also a question of uh, the incapacity to grasp the object that you are grasping towards. See, the object of faith, God as first truth speaking, just escapes our comprehension. When we confess God, our minds are not able really to cope with what we're confessing. As I said yesterday, you know that something is true, but you can't see why or how it's true. Take essay subsistence. I mean, that's a long, fruit of a long philosophical and theological discussion by Aquinas. Basically, the argument goes this way, that um, 
that the act of being, the very act of being, is different from the essence or the nature of that which is. The implication is that every nature, no nature accounts for its own existence, and so it must derive its existence from something else. If it derives its existence from something else, then the thing that it derives its existence from must either itself be derived from some further source, or it must be uh, self-explanatory. It must not just have being, but be being. Okay. Now, if that's true, if that argument works, then what you've done is you've, you've affirmed the existence of God, but you've also stripped him of any, stripped us of any positive cognitive grasp of him, anything other than an analogy of perfections. But the correct answer, and Thomas Aquinas as a child was always tormented with the question, so the story goes, with the question, what is God? That's what he began his childhood with. It's a precocious kid. <laughs> but if anybody would be capable of asking a question like that at such an early age, it would be him. And that question really represents the first challenge of Aquinas' life and his final defeat. Because he was still never able to say what God is. Why is that? It's because... Um, everything that we know is limited by what it is. I am limited by my nature. I am a human being, a man, I, I teach, I've got certain capacities. Uh, these are limiting factors. If I'm here talking to you, I can't be over in China. If I'm uh, over here talking to you, I can't be my own solar system uh, out in the nebula galaxy. I, um, being, in a concrete sense, is limitation. So to, for us, to be is to be limited. For us, the price of being real is to be finite. You've just removed all of those limitations to God, so you've introduced absolute perfection to him. But the correct answer to Aquinas, Aquinas would have given the absolutely correct question, answer to the question if they asked him as a child, what is God? His answer should be, and ours will be, I have no idea. I have no idea. Why? Because an idea is an abstraction from something, you know? An idea is an abstraction that begins in sense knowledge. Uh, if you don't have any sensory input, you can't have any positive idea of the reality. That doesn't mean we don't know that the reality exists. It just means that when you ask what it is, I have no idea. This is hard, especially if you devote your whole life to it. You know what I mean? It's one thing to do this as a theoretical obstacle to not full knowledge of the ultimate cause, but if you translate that into religious affect, it's as, my, as a heart yearns for running streams, so my soul is yearning for you, my God. There's a kind of an unquenchable thirst to see, which is, which is during the limits of this life anyway, permanently denied us. Okay. Nevertheless, the act of faith is possible because, as I said yesterday, our will in this matter outstrips our mind. In heaven, it will be otherwise, and Dominicans correctly teach that uh, our knowledge of God will be directly coterminous with our love of God. We will love God to the degree that we know him, 
and we will know God to the degree that we love him. Uh, it's not brain power, thank the Lord, that will, uh, that will increase our uh, share in the beatific vision. It's love, you know. To the, we talked about the intensification of virtues in the last talk, and uh, to the degree that you are perfected in charity, that's the degree to which you will be able to grasp what God is. Okay. Um, now, as I say, um, apologetics, what is it? Well, it's a branch of organized faith discourse, that's true. So it does qualify as theology. But I would suggest that uh, apologetic arguments about the faith, where you're trying to establish it as true or more likely than its alternative, it is, um, is not in itself directly involved with building up our faith knowledge of God. Arguments that are apologetic can be about theological subjects, um, but that doesn't make them theological. The goal, of the, you know the, the nature of an activity by its goal, okay? You know what you're doing by what you're trying to do. If I hold up my arms like this uh, in a, in a war-ravaged city, you know I'm saying, please don't shoot me. If I do this when Ohio State is playing Michigan, someone has scored a touchdown, see? But the, the, these are two very different acts and those two different consequences. You know they're different acts by the purpose behind them. This is to signal a score. This is to secure your personal safety. Identical acts materially, different acts formally. So it is with apologetics. The goal of theology, per se, is to initiate you into the wisdom of God and to build that up according to the scheme, to the, the ratio that is proper to us as rational beings. That is to say, we build it up as a discursive knowledge, discursive reasoning knowledge, because that's proper to us as human beings. Um, but it's also um, designed to reproduce in a human mode with all the limits that that imposes. We are really aiming at a knowledge of God and of the blessed. That means that we are trying to, through our activity, to reproduce in a human mind, according to human limitations, a structured analogy to the knowledge that God has of himself. See, uh, we have, St. Paul says, the mind of Christ. That means that uh, in, as we work this out, as we come to understand, uh, it's not just validated philosophical opinions about God. Our theology is the fruit of a divine sharing where we come to know through his act of revelation uh, what it is to be God. And then we, of course, have we know things in relationship to God and God's own knowledge. So to go back to Professor's uh, example of your, your friend um, or your enemy, the one who makes your life miserable, uh, how can you love him or her? Is she delightful? No, she is, or he is insufferable. Uh, is he or she virtuous? No, they fail in every discernible category that I have. <laughs> 
Is there anything positive you can say about them? No. Well, yes, there is always something possible and good to say about them, and that is that they are a creature of God. That God wills their existence just as much as he wills yours. And this, I find, helps when you think about people who have been hostile to you. You realize that um, God has more in mind for them than you can imagine. Yes, it's true you are free to say with full enthusiasm, this person is without discernible human merit. But you're also, as long as you bring in a caveat and say, but God knows what he has made this person for and I don't, and God has infinite power to make of this person a being of such quality that if I could see him or her in their final state, I would be tempted to worship them. See, that's who you're talking to. You're talking about, you're talking to an immortal. You're talking to someone who bears the image of God. You're, you're talking about and to someone whom the divine spirit is bringing towards slowly uh, an inexorable and definitive uh, fulfillment. See, he's, gonna, he's awful now, but he'll be lovely. If you think this is uh, a bit of a stretch of your imagination, Imagine your parents' reaction to you when you're 13. <laughs> I hate you! You've ruined my life! How can you let me not go to the party? Oh, I hate you! Uh, were you ever like that? Yeah, I was. I mean, I don't know how my parents stood me. I, I, okay, well, all right. Um, so, there, but we don't stay the way we are, you know? The, the grace of God works us, and even if we're awful at one stage, uh, we're less awful as we grow in holiness. And God knows, and only God knows, the final limit that he's drawing this person towards. But actually, the real reason we love them is not even because we are inspired to see their supernatural potential realized, but simply because God loves them. He, for whatever reason, wanted them to be and he then urges us to wish that for them too, that they would come to the glory that God wants them to be in. See? All right. But anyway, um, apologetics, though, as I say, um, uh, removes, is different from faith discourse. Faith discourse builds up in our minds a replication of God's knowledge of himself and of his whole creation. Um, Apologetics has a more modest aim. It is concerned with removing obstacles to, to, to faith, first of all, and then to its more elaborate version that we call theology. There are things that get in the way, and this is kind of, so you might think of apologetics as a kind of spiritual intellectual purgatory. How so? What Purgatory. Do you love God more in purg after purgatory? No, you don't. Um, you really don't. You, the, uh, the teaching is that if you uh, enter into death, the degree of charity that you have at the moment of your death is the degree of charity that you'll have through all eternity. See, it's not going to get any worse, it's not going to get any better. As you love in your death, so you will love for all eternity. However, that doesn't uh, preclude people from doing time in purgatory. What happens there? Do they love God more? No. But things that 
for a bit get in the way of their seeing God are purified, you know? It may be relationship you have with your parents. Let's say uh, you've had difficulty with your father, all right? And any kind of um, dependence on a father figure is for you uh, an open doorway and an invitation to revisited trauma, see? There are people who have that kind of suffering in their life. I just, I've met some of them. Um, uh, religious sisters were like that sometimes in the, uh, you know, there was a long argument about whether we can call God Father. Uh, you know, where that came from? Uh, well, there are a lot of places it came from. One of them was the experience of women who were abused by their fathers. To ask, to call God Father for them would be to revisit a horror. Very hard to do. But it's an obstacle, you see. Uh, it's in the way. It's not a moral fault, but it is in the way. And if you're ever going to really see God as God, this obstacle has to be taken away. Or there are other things, perhaps fear, perhaps, a, uh, and it lists the vices. They're all things that can keep us from appreciating the radically simple and uncontainable love that is God, see. You have to be ready to be joined to God, and that means that the things that get in your way have to be removed, and the name of that process by which we remove things that are obstacles is purgatory. The name of that process as we engage it in the intellectual life of the church is called apologetics. Okay. Um, See, what about, so apologetics removes obstacles. What kind of obstacles? Why, are we, why do we have, uh, why do our apologetics, um, why cannot apologetics convince us to the point of an act of faith? We said that uh, apologetics doesn't bring about faith. It removes obstacles to faith. Why are our apologetics um, sometimes not efficacious? Well, partly because the arguments we bring are less probative than they seem to us. You know, our arguments are shaped by our affections, and our affections sometimes outraise our minds. And so something that we propose as luminously clear and obvious to many other people is just simply opaque. Right? Robert George and um, at Princeton uh, has a whole nat new natural law theory which uh, talks about human basic human goods and human fulfillment. These things are such that they may never be directly attacked. Does that make sense to me? It does. Does it make sense to everybody? No, it doesn't. Is there, uh, how do you overcome that gap? I don't know. People are still trying. You see, there are things that are self-evident to an apologist that uh, their background or experience keeps other people from seeing. So there is that. Sometimes our own arguments are, are, are just plain weak because we have been blinded by our, our past as well or our intellectual formation. Partly um, because, um, as I say, our own affective life is in the way. You know, in other words, when we make an argument we, or we try to defend the faith, we come across as pushy or insecure or as zealous or as, you know, too wide-eyed. Um, 
these can be definite ob obstacles even to the best of arguments, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, have you ever noticed that with, with the level of devotion? I mean, um, I think most of us, when we think about our life of devotion, think of our own devotion as uppermost in intensity, uh, and anything beyond that is simply weird. <laughs> you know? Uh, so if I'm, I'm at the House of Studies and I'm, uh, uh, I'm at lunch and somebody comes in and they're wearing a heavy wool kappa and it's July and I want to, you know, really sport some unsightly Bermuda shorts or a shirt, you know, something like that. And uh, I see this guy wrapped up in a hot or suffocating kappa and I, my thought is, what is this man's problem? Why is he doing this? He's weird. Well, he's not weird. It just means that he is willing to embrace penance more than I am. You know? But or somebody who says the rosary. I, there is one person. I'll tell you this. Um, <laughs> I knew a person years ago who was very devout, and then uh, they were. She was getting married, and uh, when she got married, she had all of her wedding guests before the wedding mass kneel down and recite the rosary. Not five decades, but 15. Okay? Now, I, that strikes me as excessive, all right? Um, but that's, notice how what is reasonable uh, is tied to your own level of devotion. I mean, uh, people who love more maybe are willing to move more. Um, okay. Now, Again, though, we go back to the question of the success or failure of apologetic arguments. The paradox here is that um, to the degree that our arguments in defense of the faith succeed and convince people about the truth of what we're saying, that's the degree to which they fail. The degree of our success is the degree of our failure. Why is that? That's because uh, we have substituted of a ground for their affirmation other than the divine truthfulness in speaking. See, um, So, I mean, if you're, imagine yourself in a, in a police lineup, okay, and the policeman says to you, uh, uh, all right, I don't think that you were the one who was the hit-and-run driver. We're going to let you go. And you say, well, thank you for believing me. He says to you, I didn't believe you. Somebody else, a drunk, came in and confessed, okay? I didn't believe you. You mean, I, I, the police investigator is convinced and believes that you didn't really have the hit-and-run incident, but the, uh, he doesn't believe you, and actually he would be quite willing to believe you did have the hit-and-run accident. It's just that he was uh, given a... Uh, an alternative explanation which was convincing. All right, so next week, you're walking down the street. You see this, this uh, police guy who headed up the lineup, and are you gonna go up to him and say, hey, old friend, remember when you believed in me and, and knew I couldn't have done that? No, he's not, you're not gonna do that because he didn't believe you. You don't have a personal relationship. His mind just yielded to an argument or to a bit of evidence. And it's that way with God. Um, well, there is crater a deo, uh, crater a deum, 
Kratere ende, and those are three different phrases and three different modes of faith. Um, the, the one that is closest to material um, identity with the, the, the creed is believing that God. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That means I believe that that's a fact. Uh, God sent his son into the world, that's a fact. God sent the Holy Spirit to animate the disciples, that's a fact. I believe that those things are so. That's a form of faith, and if you denied them, of course, you wouldn't be in the faith, you'd be a, a outside of it. But then there's also uh, cratere deo, which is believing on the basis of divine testimony. Somehow the Holy Spirit has reached you through the words of the, through the book or through the words of the preacher or the sacrifice of the mass. Somehow, some way, God has used these things to make a personal appeal to you, see? And then that's what you really need to have a relationship with God. See? When, you, when we have a, uh, we say faith is an act of knowledge, and knowledge, of course, involves a, pers uh, knowledge involves a union with the thing known. So I know there are so many uh, people in this room this morning. All right, good. Uh, that means that you have begun to exist in a new way. Here you thought you were only existing in the same old way. Well, you've received a kind of ontological, I won't say promotion, but uh, maybe a sideways move. Um, anyway, you exist now in a new way because you're in my mind. See, I, You have extra mental existence to me. You exist independently of me, but now you exist in me. I, I'm somehow joined to you. Uh, we have an, a union now at least an intentional union. Okay, but that intentional, that, that intentional union, when it is accompanied by authentic faith, which is always accompanied by charity, then the union uh, between knower and known is also affective and hence personal, you see. So you're the policeman who, uh, uh, released you from being arrested for the hit-and-run incident, that policeman, if he were to say, you couldn't have done that. You're the son of my friend. I've known you since you were five years old. I've seen you. I've seen the way you've been all these years at birthday parties and, and all the rest of it. Right? I know you couldn't have done that. That affirmation affects a personal union. It deepens it. it it, it, it joins it together. You and them are now related in a more deep, personal way. That is what you have to have in an act of saving faith, you see. You, that's what you need. You have to believe simply because of the truthfulness of the one who communicates. Well, how do you know it's really him that's communicating? Well, this is where you run into trouble, conceptual trouble, but you have to say in our ordinary language that the Holy Spirit has elicited this act of belief and infused it with charity so that what was once just an intellectual ascent has become an interpersonal bond, which is sanctifying and actually the beginning of eternal life. Finally, there's cratere indeum, which I think is best translated believing into God. And that means believing into God as destination. 
Faith is, St. Thomas says, the beginning of eternal life. That's, that, it gets it started now. What we will, the very same grace that is operative in us now will, when we are gone from this world, blossom forth into the act of seeing. But the seed of eternal life begins now with the act of faith. See, This is why, uh, by the way, the act of faith is seen by the church to be so important. If you ask your average bear out there, um, uh, what gets you saved, most people will say, well, God wants you to be a decent person, right? Uh, or something like that, something easily accessible like that. God, he just wants us to be a good person. All right. Um, that's inadequate because there's a whole relationship that we're called to with God and that our only access to it is through Jesus Christ and our only access to that, to him, is really an act of faith. Okay. Um, now, um, how might apologetics work? Um, I want to introduce uh, some examples of how it works. Um, I want to start with... Uh, given that the purpose of apologetics is the removal of obstacles and not the infusion of sanctifying grace. Suppose uh, you are dealing with uh, what we would call the hermeneutic of suspicion. All right. Uh, let's say that you think that all knowledge and intellectual activity is really a representation of the will to power you have bought into the idea that language is a tool and it helps you manipulate the world, see? It's a survival mechanism. It doesn't really get us to a metaphysical state where the other, as other, exists in us immaterially. Uh, you don't have to go that highfalutin metaphysical route. All you have to say is that a language and thought helps you navigate the jungle, get you a job, and help you impose your will on the surrounding world. That's a very suspicious and ungenerous view of language and thought, you see, viewing it as strictly instrumental. But, but you can see where this goes. If that's true generally, uh, imagine where it goes particularly when the subject under discussion is you. Say you've just made a pitch to somebody on one of your campuses, you're saying why God appears to be reasonable to you as a hypothesis and so forth. Uh, how do they hear that? They hear, oh my God, I'm faced with another unbridled will to power who's coming to colonize me. <laughs> you know? I don't want to be colonized. Most people don't. All right. Um, okay, let's go back to essay subsistence, coming to the rescue. You wouldn't think that an idea like that would really undo Nietzsche, but he could. Again, we'll go back to uh, the unrestricted act of to be. Okay, that's we're, we're there. God is being without limitation. Okay, that means he has every perfection. That means that uh, having every protection, uh, perfection, he has no lack. He's not missing anything. There's an old hymn that goes, uh, how does it go? Um, I'm lonely, said God. 
I'll make me a world. It's an old African-American uh, spiritual, I think. Or it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poem. Maybe it's not a hymn, it's a poem. I'm lonely, said God, I'll make me a world. Well, it's beautiful and poetic, and it does talk about, evoke the heart and desire for relationships, but as theology, it fails. Um, because I'd be terrified by a God who needed me. You know what I mean? Me? I, I'm, I, I'm happy to be of whatever use, instrumental use in your providence, but the fact that you would depend on me? I mean, no God who's God shouldn't have to depend on me. Uh, better, and if I were to meet God one day at the end of my life and I face him in judgment and uh, he were to extend whatever counts as his hand and shake mine and say, you know, I've been so impressed with you. Um, you know what? I couldn't be the God I am without you. <laughs> I just couldn't be the God that I am. You have made me what I am. Uh, I would say that you're not God. See? You can't be. If you're that needy and dependent, you can't be who he is. You, you're, you don't fit the bill. Okay. So God is absolutely perfect and therefore needs nothing. So what does that mean? It means that whenever he acts outside of himself, he's acting not out of need, but out of radical generosity. He doesn't want to obtain good. He wants to give good. See? My point is that, uh, will this prove to you that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? No. Well, this won't prove anything to you, but it will prove, if you, if you accept the, uh, the argument that God has to be, exist and be perfect and without need, then that should free you from the hermeneutic of suspicion, you see? It should uh, liberate you from the idea that there's no generosity in the world. There's no love for anything for its own sake. There's only need, needed competition and ruthless struggle, right? The world is created in struggle. You can, as a believer, say that's not so. Um, now, again, the modes of saying it's not so is one thing. Philosophy, though, can get this bugaboo of the hermeneutic of suspicion out of your way. It's an obstacle. It can be removed by good apologetics. All right. Um, what about um, if your trouble is? What about a literary, a literal reading of Genesis one, the creation narrative? How if you read scripture uh, as a, a recitation of literal facts? Well, then you're in real trouble because you know all of the all of available scientific evidence goes against this. We can accept all of that, but doesn't that create an insuperable problem? Not really. Not if you interpret, if you've uh, absorbed the principle to interpret the books of the Bible in the spirit in which they were written. See, so th th that means you correctly identify the genre of writing. So um, what you have in examining Genesis one is an inspired anti-Babylonian creation account where we see that God made a said, let there be light and there was light. That's very different from Marduk and Timiat, the adventures of Marduk and Timiat, where the world is created out of the struggle between the two of them, right? In the beginning, according to the Babylonian Catechism for Children, um, in the beginning, says the Babylonian catalog, 
there was the struggle. And Marduk and Timiat were the contestants. And why did God Marduk make me? Again, in the Babylonian Catechism, uh, God made me, says Marduk, to be my slave. You exist on this world to serve me and my needs. Okay. Well, Genesis 1 counters all of that. And it does a lot more than that. But my point is that if you, if you uh, read the text in its um, original purpose, the difficulties that arise are removed. What if a difficulty is a literal rendition of the apocalypse? I mean, you are basically terrified that God is going to, you know, there, there are beasts that are going to appear and uh, so forth. Well, the, the answer to that, again, is respecting genre. The apocalypse is not designed to provide you a timetable for the events of the last age. Uh, if you treat it that way, you're mis misunderstanding it. The purpose of apocalypse is to say that God is faithful to his people and be counted on, even in times of persecution. It's all about people facing the radical power of evil, evil really radicalized, and the, the, the devil, the beast, the, the dragon, the false prophet. It's extremely powerful, we know that. But we also know that the people of God, chastised by these troubles, are destined by God to triumph over them. It's really, a, it's the, the apocalypse is not about uh, timetables, it's about manifesting God's fidelity to his people in times of persecution. Okay, so these are different um, genres of, uh, or examples of, um, of apologetics. Now, I wanna uh, talk about a couple of other instances or, uh, of apologetics. One will be an apologetics of the cross and another would be an apologetics of glory. And one of them uh, comes from the first letter to the Corinthians and the second one comes from the Gospel of John. I want to say something about each of them. But before I do that, I want to talk about uh, going back, go back to the problem of the Bible and that it poses for apologetics. Um, one of the real difficulties that uh, occur in the interpretation of the scriptures is not the view that they have mistaken the genre or that people are applying uh, approaching the text as if it were an example of one sort of genre rather than another. The problem uh, here is actually born out of respecting the different genres and respecting the results of critical study of the, of the ancient text. Okay? Now what happens then? What's the problem you have, you have a couple of problems. One of them is, of course, that the Bible is not a single book. Uh, the Bible is a library, okay? It's been composed over a thousand years. I mean, from the first day, the first page of the Bible was written, probably during the Babylonian captivity, to a thousand years later, um, the text is uh, covers a vast array of material written in different times, different places, 
under different authorities, different cultures, different worldviews, etc. How can such a ragtag collection of books have an underlying unity? Okay, how can that be? And the other um, question in response to that is, and in any case, we are separated from these texts by uh, centuries, not just of time, but of interpretation, of presuppositions, of different worldviews. Uh, how can I recover the text and the intention of the author when that text uh, is a replication of earlier texts and that text was a representation or distillation of earlier texts? How do you get to the original? See, in other words, the distance of time ex uh, represents a considerable obstacle to the original event, and since we don't have access to the original event, we have no access to, to the salvation that it represents, you see. Um, let, me, let me give an example. Um, Moses, or let's say David. Did David exist? Uh, some people have doubted it, you know. Now that the case for David's actual existence is strengthened, when they, they did some archaeological stuff and they found an ancient stone with the name David, House of David on it, so that helps. Um, but it's not an absolute proof, and many Old Testament scholars have thought that actually David was a myth, a, a way of thinking about an ideal king, but not a representation of a real man. Again, uh, time is like a great solvent dissolving with certitude our connection to the events. And that matters, you see, because if David wasn't real, then Jesus couldn't really be the son of David, you see. Or if Moses didn't really lead the people out of, the, out of Egypt to the Red Sea, then what actually is the salvation that is being talked about, right? And yet the distance between time, our time and their time, means that uh, we cannot, we do not, we will not have direct access to the realities that they're talking about. That's a real problem. Okay, let me um, just begin to address that. There's a, a wonderful book, I, I recommend it to any of you who are uh, seriously interested in scripture, it's by a guy named Francis Martin, and the, book of the, the title of the book is Sacred Scripture, The Disclosure of the Word. Anyway, he deals with, I mean, he's probably the best person I know who has tied together systematic theology and critical biblical exegesis. If you're interested in straddling both of those worlds, he might be your guy. Anyway, um, let me read some paragraphs from him uh, to bring this out. He writes, one of the most remarkable aspects of Old Testament thought is its capacity to interpret one event in the light of another. In marked contrast to her neighbors, Israel seldom saw what transpired in her history as being the earthly counterpart of what takes place in the realm above history. Rather, the resemblance is perceived to be between one act of God and another. Gerhard von Rahn expresses that there is a typology based not on myth and speculation, but on history and eschatology. There's the important bit. The events of the past appear to the prophets to have a predictive character. Thus, the prophets look for a new David, a new Exodus, a new covenant, 
a new city of God. See, The old had become a type of the new and important as tending toward it. See, So uh, what the, basically the idea is that what God has done before, he'll do again. Do it again, God. See, And the, the confidence is that he will. Which means that those uh, past people are the lens through which future events are interpreted. See, the deeds of God's past provide the interpretive key to understanding what happens to God's people in the future. The view of reality incorporated into the text is itself dependent on a more pervasive understanding of the relationship between God and the universe. Um, in another essay, Von Rad speaks of the eschatological correspondence between beginning and end. This presupposes a view of God as creator who is master of history while remaining distinct from it, who guides history but is not part of its process. Deutero-Isaiah grounds the truth of God's predictive word, one that has promised a new exodus by basing it on God's mastery over both former things and new things a mastery possible because the Lord is the eternal God, the creator of the ends of the earth. See, God is not one of the realities within the world. God is transcendent to the world and therefore transcendent to time, which means that he can act in a way in which the events of the past are actually brought forward into the future. See, So that what God did in elevating David to the kingship, he would do again and be present to the new king in Israel in the same way. You see, God was, God was with David, the same God outside of time can, so to speak, act in a way to bring about a new David. Not the same man, but the same mission, the same type. See? That's what happens in, when the Bible is involved and uh, when you involve the, the Bible's interpretation of its own history. The particular character of the Bible lies in its capacity to present the history of God's dealing with his people within two dimensions at once, the horizontal and the vertical. Horizontally, it works like this. Why did Assyria and Babylon invade Israel? Why was Israel taken off into exile? The interpretation is, well, why wouldn't they? You know, and according to a horizontal logic, uh, they're big, hungry, powerful empires. Israel's nothing but a doormat between them. Besides, they have no oil. Um, they, uh, anyway, there's nothing there. The God gave them really the least valuable real estate in the ancient Near East. Um, but that being said, uh, it's easy to understand why surrounding bigger empires would swallow them up. That's what big empires do. But that isn't the interpretive act of the prophets. They see the same event. They read into the same event, which is explicable according to a horizontal logic. You know, They explain it also by reason of a vertical logic, where God from outside of time intervenes to make clear uh, his judgment on his people, so that there is a permitted, by the insight of the Holy Spirit and the prophet, a capacity to see the same event from God's point of view, where he intervenes to bring judgment and chastisement upon his people. 
A historian, just bit bound up by horizontal time, by horizontal logic, could never, ever, in being true to the demands of the craft of history, read into it that God punished the Israelites for their idolatry. They would have to look for other explanations. But if you believe that God is outside of history and intervenes in it by bringing about in a new way what he did in the old, then you can see that you can have not only a horizontal appreciation of the, of the events of the history of Israel, you can have an intelligere. You can read into what God is doing and understand divine purposes. Does that make sense? That gives you a whole new freedom in interpreting the Bible. Uh, because uh, by, the, by knowing that God is outside of history and that God has destined, and here we have to skip a little bit, of the Christ to be the culmination of that history, we can see that Christ is the one who, um, is the one who completes the whole history of the people. We see this in the New Testament when we see the prominence given to the Exodus event as it is interpreted uh, with reference to Jesus Christ. Um, so, for example, Exodus transposes and uses the prism with which to refract the light of what took place in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Christ is our sacrifice paschal lamb what God did before he does again in Jesus. Uh, his death affects redemption as a people belonging to God. Again, the sacrificial lamb, the sin offering. Um, we've been taken from slavery and darkness. We were in slavery with Pharaoh in Egypt. Now Christ has entered into our world and taken us from, into freedom and light. And then we, you can do this with respect to Yom Kippur too. Uh, it's not just historical events that are interpreted in the light of Christ. So also are the institutions, the temple, where Jesus Christ's death is interpreted, read into, as the eternal high priest entering the temple on the feast of Yom Kippur. See? Yom Kippur finds its fulfillment and destiny in Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. These are interpretations. These are not self-evidently true. To yield to them requires a yielding to the divine light that is offered. But it's not impossible. You see, I have not demonstrated a single thing of what I've said, but I've offered something where it could be, if you believe that God is, exists outside of the flow of history, that the history and the books that chronicle the history could be tied together by a meaningful talos and completion. Christ is the fulfillment of scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. All right, now I want to talk a little bit. How much time do I have left? 10 minutes? Um, uh, uh, three minutes. Three? Well, you can have longer. <laughs> okay, I think I'll need longer. All right. Um, okay, uh, two, two uh, uh, necessarily brief um, Examples. I said that um, apologetics removes obstacles to belief. Well, one of them is uh, especially when the obstacle is ourselves. 
uh, God, in, uh, with apologetics, with, uh, accompanied by the grace of the Holy Spirit, can get us over ourselves to the degree that we need to in order to hear the good news. Let's read 1 Corinthians. Um, I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are, be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are rivalries among you. I mean that each of you is saying, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas. I belong to Christ, but is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the learning of the learned I will set aside. What's he talking about? Some people think, putting it abstractly, that he's talking about the war between faith and reason, philosophers versus preachers. But that isn't what he's talking. He's not talking about rationality versus uh, fideism. He's talking about a different kind of rationality. See? The wisdom of the cross remains wisdom. Uh, it's just a different sort of wisdom. What kind of wisdom is it? Well, it's the freedom from thinking according to the flesh. Um, let me describe, let me, uh, here we go. Um, see, reason, uh, as it is concretely exercised, is not simply a disinterested capacity for speculation. In fact, the human chief debility of the human mind is its painful tendency to fall into fearful and envious patterns of thought, and it finds healing in the contemplation of that endless resource of self-sharing that is the Trinitarian life of God. See. There, the fathers of the desert fathers of the church taken together suggest what it might mean to share in the mind of Christ to heal and awaken human rationality from grasping and jealous habits of mind by flooding the whole person with the light of the limitless divine abundance that is, in fact, the very ground of the mind's activity. Persons whose entire existence has become attuned to this abundance no longer understand anything according to the flesh, as Paul puts it. That is, they are no longer understand reality in terms of a fundamental lack, compelling all to anxious self-seeking, but are instead awake to the endless mercy of God's giving life. You're at a social event. You're looking for work. Uh, there's 15 other people who are at looking for this job. Um, what do you do? You start polishing your resume. You start thinking about how you look good in comparison to the others. There could be strife or jealousy. You could be some insecurity here, you know. Uh, often people go to these conferences not to gain light, but to gain job opportunities, you know. It can happen. Well, if that's your motive, then, then you are gripped by a fear of scarcity, see. And what God, if you really believe that God despised human status and took on the form of a slave, for our salvation, the more that gets in you, the more that is part of you, 
unless you are dominated by the fear, the fearful thoughts that are later identified by the Desert Fathers as the seven deadly sins, seven patterns of thought that are debilitating because you don't think that God is really going to take care of you, that God will be enough, you see. Thinking according to the flesh is thinking according to the endless capacity of human beings for self-aggrandizement. But the cross of Christ shows us when he took on the form of a slave, being as all men, uh, he became as a slave and he suffered death on a cross, that, ex that witness of Christ, if internalized, has the power to let you know that God was not afraid to be a nobody and that to the degree that you yield to the light of revelation given in that, uh, you are also free from the fear of being a nobody. You know you are somebody in God and you're empowered to do what he wants. You see, that's where you're free. That's an apologetic where the problem is the thinking according to the flesh and the removal of the problem is really the embracing of the cross and with confidence and joy. All right, I was going to do the same thing with the Gospel of John, but time has run out and you can never do everything. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to say this is the theology, theology of the cross. The emphasis is upon the asceticism because uh, Paul's talking to the Corinthians and he's saying, you guys are full of yourselves. Look at you. One of you is saying you belong to Cephas, one belongs to Paul, one belongs to Apollos. Basically, you're all egomaniacs. And if you're all going to face that, you have to be willing to suffer a bit. You see... It's a blow to their self-esteem. But the blow to their self-esteem, if you want to look at it that way, uh, provides an opportunity to grow an authentic self-esteem. See, the, you begin with asceticism here, uh, and then the, the way that word of revelation works itself out in you eventually comes into combating the seven thoughts or the seven deadly sins. That's why I wanted to highlight Corinthians as being uh, an example of ascetical theology. If I had had more time, if I had been more economical in my presentation, I would have been uh, able to show you that uh, the Gospel of John takes the same subject matter but a different approach with the theology of glory, where the glory of God that shines uh, in the temple, when Isaiah says, holy, 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 is the same glory that shines on the suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall be greatly exalted. He, he was high and greatly exalted, says, the, uh, says Isaiah about the Lord in the temple. Same glory found <coughs> in uh, the Gospel of John, where, where he talks about the doxa, the glory of Jesus, uh, where the glory is manifested uh, in his hour, <laughs> which is the hour of the cross.
Yes. So if simulation is like truly knowledge, why, uh, like would it, what's the downsides and benefits of like apologetically positing revelation? Well, here's what I wanted to say about that. I said apologetics is characterized by its aim, which is the removal of obstacles. But when God is the one doing the apologia, which is what I wanted to get at, when it's God through Paul talking to the Corinthians, he can do more than remove obstacles. He can infuse them with the surrender to the wisdom of the cross that will free them from thinking according to the flesh. So it's a genuine knowledge. Enough. what's the cash value of it? Well, the cash value of it, even for people who don't have faith, is, my goodness, you're free. Here you are, professors saying to you, basically implying if you don't agree with this, that, and the other ideological point, we want you to conform to, you won't have a job. Where do you get the insouciance and the freedom to say, well, that'll be all right. I can, I can live with that. How can you live with that? Well, I just can. Sometimes freedom is disturbing to other people, you know, and or at least poses a real question to other people. What is their security they can afford to do that? That's freedom, and that's really a kind of wisdom that you can't get anywhere else. Yes, sir. Um, a common apologetic technique of like Muslims, uh, Mormons, but also used by like Catholics is giving like a sacred scripture, for example, like the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Bible, and like saying just read it and it'll speak to you, and it'll be kind of self-evident, or you know God will speak to you and show you that this is true. Our faith is true. Mm -hmm. What is the distinction between like? The, because there is goodness and value in like, reading sacred scripture and being spoken to by God in that way, versus like you know, maybe a, another faith that makes a claim like that and we kind of discern whether it's actually the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a good question. Um, basically, the Bible's read often in context of a, of a believing community. The Bible really isn't by itself self-interpretive. Uh, so in the church, there are certain you know basic ways of understanding the scripture, which are actually supple. Okay, but that the reading, however accurate it is, according to a tradition, however informed by a tradition, always has to leave play for the freedom of the Spirit of God to move you through a particular verse. This is the practice of lexio divina, where you sit with the Psalms or the or the epistles and and ruminate and then something will strike you one day and it's not like that is guaranteed to be the best results of contemporary exegesis but God thank God is not limited by the best results of contemporary exegesis he can use the words to affect something uh, beyond the immediate sense of the words now again just like uh, how do you know when that's genuine I think you know it's genuine by its fruits there are crazy readings of the Bible, and they turn out to be unfruitful over the long term. It seems that God isn't in a hurry to, to do this kind of revealing work. I mean, he, it, uh, he, it, sometimes it takes God and us time to see what he means. You know, that's one of the great puzzles I have. I mean, I'm not putting this forward uh, as an answer to anything. I'm putting it forward as a, as a genuine question. Um, how can God fail, I mean, to communicate? Did you ever see Cool Hand Luke? What we have here 
There's a failure to communicate. How can God fail to communicate? And yet, he apparently does. He says things and people refuse them, you know, don't understand them. I think the only way is that to understand that is that he has a providential ordering where if we, what we don't get today will still be in us and bother us and stay with us until we come to the point where we understand what he meant. Oh, that's what God meant, I think. And then that's looking backwards. I think that uh, readings of the scripture, as I suggested earlier, are validated by, ret- by a, a retrospective vision. Um, Yes, that's what he was doing. It's a matter of reading the path of providence in your own life. And that's always through a rear view mirror. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how to ask this, but um, But you said that God doesn't depend on us. And I don't know if that was just more of like a phrasing thing. But like, is that to say that he doesn't have expectations of us? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that he is condescended to use us instrumentally, but he's not fulfilled in doing that. He does use us, and he's decided to use us, and it does matter whether, matter whether we let ourselves be used, but, uh, if he, but what God does through us, he can do without us or beside us or, you know. Okay, so by saying that, you're just saying that, like, whether or not we fulfill those expectations, he still is God. He still is God, yeah, otherwise he'd be... No, that he created us for no reason. That's right. Okay. That's right, yeah. Well, there's a reason for us, all right, to share in his providence. But but it doesn't, thank God, depend on us. Yes. Thank you for your talk, Father. I was just wondering if you could say a few words about maybe the similarities or differences in the methods of apologetics versus catechesis, especially in light of the evangelization. Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, I think catechesis, apologetics responds to difficulties, uh, obstacles, whereas catechesis builds up a more positive, with un- conflict-free vision of the faith, you know? I mean, it's interested in a whole picture and in an untroubled, you know, grasp of the whole, which means they tend not to focus on the building up the theology or the catechesis by a record of the fights. I think that um, catechesis is taking the basic sure doctrine of the faith and handing it on in integral form. It doesn't have, it does not typically... Uh, involve elaborate defenses, which is apologetics, or an elaborately scientifically developed system wherein curiosities or difficulties can be addressed. It's a basic, it's like an extended written act of preaching. Does that make sense? Uh, You are, Jesus Christ was born, he suffered, he died, he rose again. It's like going through the creed, uh, basically developing the creed in a way that somebody could uh, grasp the whole, know what the church teaches, and um, that, that would, that's what catechesis, I think, does. Also, catechesis has some involvement with integrating into the community. Uh, RCIA programs typically emphasize making the people who are coming into the church uh, real members of the community so they get to know each other, they have meetings, they. They do stuff like that. And that's not very intellectual, but it's 
the, the purposes of catechesis are more than intellectual. It's to get someone into the community so that they can be informed by many ways, through many routes, um, not all of them planned out, what the truth of God is. They're counting on the community itself providing a real formation of its, of its own. Thank you again, Father Corbett. She wanted you to do that. She wanted me to do that? No, I'm totally kidding. Okay. It's, not, yeah. it's so easy with like TI stuff. Oh, someone seems to have as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm on the clock, and I feel like I need to do what you guys do and hang out with you all. Yeah, it's just that you can pass on Friday, and then when it comes to like, yeah, because I Wednesday and Friday, like only till noon. I mean, till dinner. Sometimes, um, like as a like as a religious fasting. Yeah. I just said pen and took out the year. They take very seriously. Yeah, I just spiritual or not spiritual. I spiritual advised to his Coptic Orthodox for a couple of years, so he got me on this whole like Wednesday and Friday year round. Besides like Easter octave and Christmas octave, like you're 